This is Derailed Trains of Thought. Welcome to Derailed Trains of Thought. This is uh, Nick Hayden, aka Nicky Noodle. And this is Timothy Deal, aka Oklahoma Jones. Oklahoma Jones, that is a great name. Well, that's an old one from my playing pretend, you know, as a kid. It was my version of Indiana Jones. Oh, fabulous. Use Oklahoma because that's where I was born. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, I, my family is originally from Indiana, but my, that was where my dad went to dental school. But anyway. Um, well, I'm coming to you from uh, Indiana. It's like 20-some degrees here today. Nice. How's weather there in uh, sunny Virginia Beach? Well, not so sunny today. <laughs> it's, it's been kind of cloudy, and I don't think we've gotten any rain. It's just been kind of cloudy. But it's not been that cold. It's been in the 60s. Yeah, yesterday it was 40 here, and then it dropped down overnight, and everything iced up. It was good fun. Just in time for Black Friday, huh? Just in time for Black Friday, exactly. So, in case you're wondering, uh, dear listener, why we're talking about the weather, uh, let's go ahead and introduce Story School and we'll explain. So this section is called Story School, where we talk about some aspect of storytelling that we think will be interesting and maybe be helpful to those of you who write, film, and or consume media. Anybody. Anybody, exactly. <laughs> Today's topic, then, is weather and or atmosphere, and talk about how it affects a story, how it can heighten emotions for a scene, and other such interesting factoids. So, Tim, how about you pick a first weather meteorological event that we can discuss. Okay, well, since you mentioned rain, it rain is probably one of the first story affecting weather conditions that comes re readily to mind. We've all seen, you know, climatic battles in the pouring rain, the battle between Jack and Evil Locke. See, I knew you had to bring Lost, and I thought the same scene. <laughs> yeah, that was the first thing that came to mind for some reason. But some other ones that come quickly to mind, The Beast versus Gaston and Beauty and the Beast. Oh, that's a good one. That's um, an awesome showdown. Uh, there's the black battle in the third Pirates of the Caribbean movie. That's true. That whole thing takes place inside of uh, Maelstrom, basically. Yeah. But it's also a good place for... It's a good setting when a character is rejected, if he's feeling depressed or lost or just overall sad. You see that all the time. Or on the complete opposite end, sometimes you get romantic, really good times in the rain. Well, singing in the rain, for one. Where Gene Kelly is, he's happy and singing and jubilant because he's in love. And so everything is good even though it's raining. And this is also spoofed in the highly underrated film Lady in the Water. Oh, good, you brought that up too. I was thinking of the same scene. This is sad. Well, We're both thinking of the exact same examples. <laughs> we could be in trouble. But they they make such a point of it because I think it, the critic at some point in the film says something about, oh, it's been so long so I don't remember the exact quote, but it says something about, oh, I hate it when the hero and his girl get together in the rain and it's supposed to be, you know, so happy and cleansing and he's like, it's just dumb. <laughs> and of course, that's the way the movie ends is kind of a nod to embracing convention in spite of itself. Which is part of that whole movie, but um, <laughs> yeah. The the interesting about rain because I was I was discussing this topic with my wife is the rain is probably one of the most multi faceted weather events in a in any sort of story. I mean, because yeah. look, we have giant battles, real action oriented scenes, and it adds it adds another level of epicness to it for some reason. Mm -hmm. And then you have you know romantic things, and you have the complete opposite when you're all depressed. And it's interesting that one one event can wear so many different faces. Well, I suppose that's because it's true for the, you know, rain can take on many natures itself. For, you know, it can be pounding in a thunderstorm or it can be, you know, kind of drizzling. And we can read a lot of different things into the rain depending on just the overall atmosphere and, the, uh, and how the day hits us, I guess. 
It's like rain's a multiplier. It just accentuates whatever emotion you're already going for. Yeah, that's that's a good expression of it. I, and singing in the rain, it's jubilance and, and life-giving, whereas in other scenes, it's life-sucking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it, it does have a, I guess, rain, because it's, you know, water coming from the sky, always has this sense of life to it, whether it's, you know, beating down life or lifting it up. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I was trying to think in my own stuff if I've ever used rain to any extent. There was a story... Man struck by lightning survives, where there's a, a both a storm and then rain at a funeral, where it's very you know supposed to be very monotone, very mo- monochromatic. Mm-hmm. But that's oh, no, there was I did use rain as life giving once in the Desert Woman, where it's the desert and it, there's no life, and the main character is this woman who can't have a, she can't have a kid, she feels like she's barren, and then at the end there's this rain and the whole desert blooms. And then it's kind of symbolic because then she has a kid soon after. Nice. So it has that kind of symbolic aspect to it. Which I think is something Weather can do very well is really add another level of meaning to Mm -hmm. whatever you're trying to say. And I just have to throw in here a very famous example of rain or storms, which is kind of the dark end of rain, is uh, Snoopy. You know, it was a dark and stormy night. (laughs) Very famous opening line for any writer. Yeah, which I don't think Snoopy actually invented, but still. No, I don't, I don't think he did either. But he should have. <laughs> well, at one time I heard, I read about whoever was the guy that came up with that line, but the details of it escape me now. Yeah, they started some sort of purple prose contest, I think, where they point out every year prose that is particularly overwrought. <laughs> but rain kind of leads us into storms, where storms are often used for coming disaster, you know, a number of movies or stories that have the storm is coming, or yeah. the Return of the King is especially fraught with that. It's the <laughs> it's the quiet before the storm, and <laughs> before the forces of Mordor attack. Because there is something kind of a uh, like God's wrath attached to storms, to the coming mm-hmm. storm. Yeah, and you use that feature of storms pretty directly in Local Man uh, Struck by Lightning survives. Don't want to give too much away, but the thunderstorm itself becomes a means of conversation between the main character and God. Yes. Really cool ending, I always thought. I I really like that story. It's one of those I'm like, will I ever write one quite like that again? I don't need to since I wrote one like it. But but yeah, storms themselves are rarely used in in a happy context. Not so much. I mean, rain can be, but a storm is Wheel of Time for my birthday. I'm pretty sure my sister owns a bookstore. It's going to get me the newest Wheel of Time book. Mm-hmm. The last year's book, uh, can't even think what the title of it is. Oh, The Gathering Storm. The first chapter is what the storm means. It's The whole book is basically kind of a, here's this, the last battle is coming, kind of just moving all the pieces into place and being real ominous. And so it's like an extended metaphor because at the very end of the entire book, kind of the storm, because there's an actual storm cloud that's like Harley Moon that like is covering the entire land and there's a break in it and there's some sunlight that comes down kind of like representing this big deal change that happened, mm-hmm. which it doesn't matter to our listeners who have not read it. But Robert Jordan uses weather for that sort of symbolism quite a bit, I know. Well, and it's interesting because I've heard Christians talk about the storm when, and really enjoying thunderstorm just as, as an expression of the wildness and the power of God. But it's true, we don't see that as much in the stories. And I wonder if, if that's because a lot of storytellers, that's part of God that they fear, that it seems foreign and unapproachable to them. It'd be, it'd be an interesting study of that. It would be, because I actually did, I never wrote it, but I had this first chapter of a series of novels where this guy would walk out into the storms on purpose because he really liked existing in that, you know, in the kind of the wrath of God, wildness, in the wildness of God. Um, And then this guy dropped out of the sky and it started the story. Um, (laughs) I wrote a poem about it once, too, maybe I should hunt that up. But it it really focused on that, like, just absorbing all the rain, the wind and stuff. Oh! 
second book of Strain Fred, actually. There's a, the Rutsuin, which is a special sort of storm, and Fred's just yelling at it near the end of the book. Oh, yeah, I love that moment. That's one of my be- one of my favorites. But Doesn't the character Timothy, who I always thought had an awesome name, uh, <laughs> doesn't the character Timothy in that book also weather a night out in the storm? Oh, yes, he does, yeah. And, and that's in a very kind of... Well, yeah, because he he weathers it, and he kind of, I guess, perversely likes weathering it because he has a sense of guilt for his parents having died. In his case, it's more of a case of inner turmoil. Yes. Which, I guess, is not terribly unlike Fred yelling at the storm either, because <laughs> poor Fred was really getting beaten down, and he needed that. Yes, it was great a great release for Fred at that point. Anyway. Yes, so, storms... You know, I when the more I think about the atmosphere thing, I really like using weather. Weather to me is a great part of setting. I don't describe a lot of things, but I love having some. You know, the weather kind of coincide or move along. Another one that I've I've used a number of times, at least I did in Squire, is sunrises and sunsets. Yeah, you mentioned this when we were talking about getting ready for this uh, episode. This is one that doesn't readily come to mind. So give me some examples of how you might have used it. Well, in the Squire, there's the last couple chapters all in darkness, and there's lots of things. It's all night, and it's raining, and they're trying to take back over the kingdom, basically. And then there's this giant battle, and then it's the sun rises, and it's almost like it's a new day. Well, it's not. It is a new day, but it has uh-huh. a symbolism of being a new day also, which is usually how the sunrise is used. You see it, you see it in um, disaster movies. Sometimes, where the sure. sun will rise and it's like everything's destroyed, but we're still alive. Yeah, Twister comes to mind for some reason. Exactly. I remember it was in, and this is a little different, but in City of Ember, I've not read the book, but in the movie, um, they get out of the city, out of the, you know, the gate caves they live in, and they're like, "Oh, it's just darkness out here too." And then the sun rises and reveals this whole land they've never known even existed. Mm. Nice. Well, sunrise also. Not directly related, but going towards where the sun comes from is like, you know, Voyage of Dawn Treader, in the sense that moving towards the sun is moving towards something holy. Well, and then I guess riding into the sunset, we alluded to that at the end of our first episode, where the good guys ride off victoriously and into the setting sun, very golden atmosphere. Yeah, because, triumphant. because the, you know, the those... 20, 30 minutes right when the sun's rising or setting are very unique kind of special times of day. Mm -hmm. Actually, filmmakers have a term for that. It's called the golden hour. And if you can film during the hour or two where the sun is setting, you can get some of the best looking light that really, really films well because everything's kind of bathed in gold. But that's got to be hard timing wise. It it would be. You'd have to rehearse in advance, you know, they make get all of your settings. Everyone knows what they're doing during that very brief period of time that they film in. But it, they use it. And I've actually seen one Regent student film that major portions of it were all filmed during the golden hour. It must have taken them a lot of really careful preparation, but it looked really good. It was worth the effort. I noticed on uh, the show 24, sunset and sunrise tend to exist for like the five minutes when they're opening the show and they can just show shots of the sunrise. And <laughs> otherwise, it's always it's day or it's night. Because I couldn't imagine, you know, trying to film a whole hour, you know, because there's about an hour of, you know, sunset or whatever that a whole, a whole episode would take place in. Yeah. And that would take a lot of time when you only have, what, like seven, eight days to film an episode. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, sunrise, sunsets, I think is an interesting one that's, it has to be used just right, but if you can time the, the time the events of well, for me, your stories to go coincide with with those things, I think you can do some interesting atmosphere, and you're stuck in your reader's head. It's a more limited kind of weather atmosphere use, but still effective. Yes. All right. So what's next? I don't know. I'm trying to think what other ones we had just thought about writing. Um, ice, snow. Again, the, the, these this is much more specific. But it has that sense of deadness and, well, you know, like deserts are kind of the same. Deserts have this idea of death or this, you know, this sort of desert heat. But snow especially can have a lifeless effect, a sense that everything's sterile. Mm-hmm. Snow on the battlefield where everything is dead and frosted over. But on the other hand, it can also be very 
I don't want to say life-giving, but I'm thinking of the use of snow in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's very interesting, that because in one sense, it does represent the snowy Narnia, does represent a dead Narnia, in a sense. But it also, you get the impression of, as soon as Lucy steps out of the wardrobe into Narnia, even, that's a very magical effect. I'm thinking of the recent film adaptation, where, you know, the first few steps out of the wardrobe, where it transitions from coats to fur, and she steps out into the snowy lantern waist, where there's a lantern there. And it's a very magical effect, even though the snow over Narnia, having been there for a long time, represents a certain deadness. Interesting paradox. That's true. And I think especially falling snow has a lot more magicalness than just ice. Yeah, definitely. Look at falling snow compared to, again, going back to Narnia, the White Witch's, you know, very dead castle. Where, yeah, where you said everything is iced over and cold. and So maybe that's hard. the distinction. Ice is more this cold, hard, unbendable stuff. And the snow has more of a, a, a magical, mystical quality to it. That makes sense. Yeah, that sounds right. Like, well, that's, that's not so much weather. I was going to say sometimes going up into mountains and getting into the snow area. But some of that's the moving upwards. That's true, yeah. Going to the high places. Yeah, going to high places has a has a symbolic effect. Snort, they're moving towards the mountains, and that that has sort of an extra meaning to it. But that's not quite weather. Well, you know, I was also thinking about time of the year in, in regards to this weather stuff, and it occurred to me, you know, especially since we're coming up on the Christmas season, that take Home Alone, for example, a story wouldn't necessarily have to be told during Christmas time. Just a story about a boy being left alone and having to defend, defend his house from burglars. It, theoretically, that could take place at about any time of the year. But because it takes place at Christmas and you've got all the other feelings about families getting together and cheer and, you know, enjoy and this kind of stuff, it becomes Kevin's loneliness becomes more pronounced. You know, a little kid all by yourself. So, not necessarily related to weather so much, but it being set at Christmas time still gives it a certain atmosphere that it would miss otherwise. That's true. And and speaking of seasons, well, first off, I thought it would be interesting sometimes to take movies that we or stories that we know and change the weather from important scenes and see how it would change the the whole makeup of the of how we interact with it. Uh-huh. But I I didn't hadn't thought of any good examples yet. <laughs> well, I was like trying to change, you know, if if Luke grew up on Hoth instead of Tatooine, would that change our perception of Luke? But that's almost more setting and not so much weather. Yeah, and I don't know if it would. I mean, those both be very deserted backcountry kind of places. That's true. That's why I was I was just experimenting with things. I didn't have a coherent answer. Well, at least we've got our Star Wars reference. We missed that <laughs> last time. Unless you cut it out. Um, <laughs> but about well, seasons... Fall is another very interesting season because, you know, it's dying, but it also has a sense of bittersweet happiness to it. That's very true. Um, there's there's certain scenes that when the leaves are falling, they're happy, but they're, they've got kind of that subdued happiness. You don't have, like, big jump-for-joy scenes Yeah. Um, in autumn normally. Now, in bright sunlight and, you know, shorts and stuff, yeah. Mm. And, and some, some, you know, sunlight is one of those things that, is weather, but you don't, it's almost just the, the norm. Yeah. It's just going to be sunny unless something different is going on. Well, yeah, because in sunlight, that's where you get the best lighting for your scene anyway. So that's, that's true. Some, summer weather is kind of just the default for a lot of movies. And it could also have something to do with all the movies that are filmed in California. Yeah, that's true. Well, I was thinking, going back to fall real quick. It occurred to me, Asian films are especially good at using autumn. Oh, um, yeah. Because they really love the falling leaves. And I'm thinking of the scene in Hero where there's an actual battle between the two women. And there's just leaves that are kind of flying up all over the place all around them. And it's kind of an expression both of the deadness that they feel because they've both lost someone that, well, the same man that they both really cared for. And just it becomes an outlet expression of the movement of the martial arts that they're doing. There are other cases where, you know, just the falling leaves can, can symbolize, you know, loss or they carry a lot of meaning behind that kind of imagery. It's interesting. We keep talking about how much meaning weather transfers into a story, 
which tells you in normal life weather means something. It's just interesting that, I mean, as Christians, we don't think it's in, we don't think it's astounding that the weather means something. We think everything kind of is an expression of <laughs> a personal God. Sure. But the fact that it does is still kind of uh, intriguing. Yeah, especially since we see the same seasons. We go through the same seasons, you know, every year of our lives. And yet the changing weather, it still reminds us anew of different facets of God, I think. And I've, I've often thought that that's something that people who go down to live in Florida because they always prefer it to be warm are really missing something about how the seasons communicate different things and how they, there's a beautiful variety in the weather that I think, I don't know, I, I would hate to miss in a place that was constantly the same temperature. Yeah. Unless it was maybe Hawaii. <laughs> Another weather effect that's used kind of sparingly and for good reason is fog. Fog is probably mm. the most mysterious. I think yeah. fog probably shows up in mysteries more than any other novel. Sometimes romance, though. That's it, true. I was thinking about fog earlier in relation to Casablanca. Have you ever seen that, Nick? I have. It's been quite a, it's been quite a while, but I have. It's a fabulous movie, well deserving of its title as a classic film. But I was just thinking about that fog that that is at the, like the closing scene. Oh yeah. When, when we're Rick at the and, plane. Yeah, when they're at the plane and they're saying goodbye, and then Rick and the French guy go kind of walking off in the distance. And this could be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> I that sounded more like Sean Connery than Humphrey Bogart, <laughs> but anyway, there's something intangible about it, and that's kind of a bittersweet ending, anyway. So when fog's it very fits. yes, and fog's very dreamlike, very ambiguous. You know, dream sequences sometimes you'll move things will move in and out of reality through fog. You know, Hound of the Baskervilles, you got the Moors in general or the the land equivalent of fog. But Yeah. Well that that's Sherlock Holmes for you. Yeah. They use the fog of London very effectively in, in the books. Well, very mysterious atmosphere. A lot of the gothic novels do, I think. You know, the sort of Jane Eyre, Frankenstein mm-hmm. have lots of that sort of oppressive weather. Which I think you use a little bit well at some point we're gonna actually tell the story on here, but but I think you used that a bit in your short, short story, Dinner at Twilight, too, didn't you? Yes. It's more, yeah, I guess I did some. It's more cold and darkness than fog. Okay, is that more, that's more of a winter atmosphere. Yeah. Than... I like, okay. I like the cold, I like using cold, dark, and gold, coldness and darkness. I wrote a whole story, uh, The Memory, that takes place basically in a world of ice, and it kind of symbolizes this, the, the main character has this dream she remembers from, she thinks before she was born of lights and warmth, but nowhere on the earth is really warm. And she keeps moving into cold and colder regions looking for it. Hmm. And so the ice is really kind of another character. And Dinner Twilight's a lot of just that, like sunset, you know, it's, it's the light fading away idea. Yeah. Which works with the whole theme of the story as well. I was trying to think of different weather kind of atmospheres that I've used in mine. And I, and I can't say that I've used as much. I mean, obviously I haven't written nearly as much as you have. It's harder in movies too, to use weather's more writers. We can pull a storm out of our pockets, but filmmakers have to plan for them. Yeah. And it's <laughs> not something that you can often do on a student's film budget. <laughs> but one instance I could think of that I, I kind of use the atmosphere as plot significance, I think, would be my short story called A Tale of Fairies. Oh, yeah. And it's probably the short story that I've written that I think has held up best over time, at least in my personal opinion. Because it's a story about, well, it's a story about storytelling, in a sense. It takes place, well, there's this family that gathers together for a campfire beside the ocean, and they tell stories together. So it intercuts between this family telling stories and the story that they tell about a knight and fairies and a curse and stuff like that. I wanted the, st- the story that they told to differ a little bit from the scenes depicting them telling the story. So there was almost no dialogue in the story that they told, but it was mostly dialogue in the scenes depicting the family. And yet I still wanted the scenes with the family to still have a, a sort of magical atmosphere, realistic, even whimsical. Sort of the atmosphere that I've experienced that really stirs up my imagination. So I really had fun making it just a beautiful, clear, cool summer night. Because I've never actually had a campfire by the beach, 
but I've had campfires and I've taken moonlit beach walks. So I sort of combined the two impressions. And I really had fun with the atmosphere. And I guess that's a case where the quiet weather, well, I guess it's night time. So it's a time of day that affected it. For our purpose, I would call night uh, a weather. Okay. It made the story feel more complete in that even the the scenes that were taking place in the real world, there felt something magical kind of tucked away just because in the still of the night, in the ocean tide, in the crackling fire, all that all that good stuff. Yeah, I think I, I remember that, and I think that works really well. Nighttime, I guess maybe we'll finish it off with talking about nighttime or the different elements. I mean, you're right, nighttime can be very mystical, clear the full moon or the stars, and you can play a lot with... You know, romance can happen in scenes like that, or just kind of whimsical or mysterious uh, scenes. Mm -hmm. I like to play, I mentioned this to you earlier, I like to play with complete darkness. Yes. Preparing for this, I realized that most of my major works involve, at some point, my main character going into a cave that's mostly mostly dark. Uh And I don't know why exactly I do that. The the largest example is Isle of Gold and Girl Called um, Girl Called Snort. And part of it, I think, is actually the downward motion. I think some of it, too, is the, the sense of disorientation associated with darkness. Hmm. And the sense of emerging into light. That's, you know, like a, I don't know, rebirth is probably too heavy of a term for most of the ways I use it. But that transition from light to dark, like sunsets and sunrises, but even more pronounced, I think, matters. Hmm. There are scenes that happen in darkness that in the light would, would not matter. In A Girl Called Snort, the Kingdom of the Blind is one of the most fascinating places in cultures I think you've ever come up with. This underground kingdom, essentially, that is complete darkness. No one can see anything. They have no means of lighting their surroundings. And so you relied solely on... Your descriptions were about how things looked, but about how things felt and how they sounded. And it was really fascinating to read. It was an it was interesting to write too to try to find new ways to explore your setting your surroundings because we um, rely it, so much on our vision so depriving your your writer of that was a great exercise and plus it was fun because from a cultural point of view because not only do they have no source of light they haven't had a source of light for many many years mm. their entire uh, way of look of dealing with the world is a way that only deals with basically darkness in your brain yeah. I mean, that's all you ever. What What's the the parable? If your if your eyes are light, then good. Mm. But if your if the light in your eyes is darkness, how great that darkness sort of yeah deal. I butchered that really bad, but <laughs> that's the majority of the of the weather things I had thought up beforehand. And there are other ways. We just touched on a lot of the weather stuff, but there's a lot of ways that you can include a sense of atmosphere in your stories. And it doesn't have to be very long. Another example from one of my own stories was from Adopted Royalty, which is a story that I look back on and I see a lot of good and bad things in it. But one good thing that I really liked about it came early after this kind of nightmare sequence. There's... A paragraph break, and then this simple line. Warm sheets, soft fabric, crackling fire. Ah. And I always love that, because it's just seven words that I think convey a very comforting atmosphere after having been surrounded by nightmares, essentially. Warm sheets, soft fabric, crackling fire. Ah. And the image I hope it conveys is, you know, like a bedroom or just someplace home-like. Yeah, I, th- I think complete right. The impressions of atmosphere, which includes weather but goes far beyond it, add tremendously to a person's involvement in the story. Mm-hmm. Gives it another layer. I mean, it can be overdone because I've seen sometimes people try too hard and you're like, okay, get past the description, get on to the good stuff. Well, for my style, you know, a sprinkling or a, a sensation more than a full-out description yeah. suffices. And, you know, maybe sometime we come back and talk about other ways to do atmosphere. Sure. But, yeah, weather's a big one for anything that's outside, I guess. It doesn't help if you're, you're like, in an office building, I suppose. (laughs) Unless sprinklers go off. (laughs) (laughs) That could make for a a dramatic change. That's true. true. (laughs) (laughs) So we challenge you to use weather. 
because you can. And if you're a filmmaker, that's a bonus to you if you can afford doing something really cool with the weather. <laughs> that's true. So I guess that's that's story school. I hope you enjoy it. And now we'll move on to soundtrack. So I'm taking the first remix for the day. I picked one called Icy Peaks. I was just searching through the overclocked remix database, looking for things that related to weather, hot, cold. I came across this one from a game I have never heard of. Um, it is called, and Tim's going to laugh at me, Tohu Yu Yu Mu Perfect Cherry Blossom. Nice attempt. <laughs> from what I understand is a indie game maker in Japan makes these games. And it's a shoot-em-up. It sounds interesting. It's for PC, I believe. Yeah, I believe so. I enjoy this. It's short. It's really beautiful. It's the guy who took four... His name is Justice Johnston, who remixed it. He made a violin suite, basically. But he played all four parts by himself. He recorded over himself four times and put together this piece called Icy Peaks. I hope you enjoy Well, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that little short string piece. Very beautiful. I, I really liked it when I rediscovered it. Um, next, we'll go into a section we call Project Update. Tim, we'll start with you. What have you been doing? Have you finished your editing on the movie I can't remember the title of? Uh, a Piece of Cake. Yes. Um, it's still in post-production. I'm a little sick of it, but it's nice. I'm taking a break from this weekend. I haven't touched the thing since Wednesday. It's still coming along. We had our uh, executive producer, well, a faculty member, take a look at it, and he had a number of things that he helped, you know, wanted to have us try, try to tighten it up a bit. So it's not going to be 18 minutes. I always kind of knew it wouldn't, but we've already cut out like, I think a minute of it or close to that. Maybe that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So work will continue on it next week, but since the semester is kind of winding, is winding down and we got other schoolwork final stuff that we got to get to, it should be wrapping up pretty soon here. I mean, I'll have to, <laughs> Our final deadline is not until April, but we kind of need to have the picture of Final Cut locked before the end of the semester. And so the next few months, at the beginning of next semester, will be devoted to audio and color correction and things like that. Which some of it I'll have a part in, but some of it I won't. So and it'll be kind of spread that work around a little bit more. 
And then you're finishing up the semester in a few weeks, he said. Yep, finishing up the semester in a few weeks. And we'll talk about this. We're going to have to take a little break from the podcast because it's, you know, end of the semester craziness time, trying to catch up on everything. And then we'll see what happens after that. Well, that's what's going with Tim. That's all you've got. That's all I got, yep. Well, for, I've just been working on Buckethead like a madman. <laughs> and doing a great job, I should add. Oh, thank you. I feel like it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever written, but I'm having fun doing it. <laughs> Man, I tell you, I don't think I've ever seen a hero get so close to dying, like, halfway through his own story. <laughs> it, well, that's the thing. I get to these parts where I'm like, what am I going to do now? <laughs> the problem with not having any plan at all is that i got to pull something out of thin air and hope it doesn't sound too deus ex machina. <laughs> I mean, there's there's a number of things that are relatively convenient, but uh-huh. that's kind of the na- nature of the beast at this point. But it's also fun to try to see what I can get away with. I suppose, yeah, if you were planning it more, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't keep the stakes so high so constantly. Yeah, I mean, that, which maybe it's a good thing that I didn't plan because I don't know if I would have written this sort of story otherwise. That's true. It would have been more unfolded a little less hectically. And and there's downsides to the hecticness, but it's good to write at least one book like that, or long story. It's almost like a superhero story meets Die Hard, in a sense. It it, it has a lot of Die Hard to it. I just like the idea of ramping it up constantly. Yeah, and it's not like your hero goes and deals with his alter ego life, his civilian life. It's like one long mission, essentially. Yeah, it's more, it's almost more of an action movie than a superhero movie. Which sounds kind of strange, but yeah, it is very much like that. So yeah, I've had fun with it. I know the Apple, I figured out the epilogue, but I haven't figured out how to get there yet. <laughs> and I wrote there that I probably won't be able to finish it by the end of November, partly because we had Thanksgiving and I have this, my son's first birthday parties tomorrow will take up a lot of the day. And I've been kind of busy in the last couple of days. But I think I'll finish it up early December. I don't think it has too much left to go. It's at about 20,000 words right now, which is not anywhere near what it should have been for National Novel Writing Month. But, but is that like 50,000 words? It's 50,000 words, yeah. Uh, that's insane. And which I know some people on Facebook and following have reached it. Uh-huh. If I had written 50,000 words of this sort of novel at this stake level, yeah. it would have been too exhausting for the reader, I think. Probably, yeah. <laughs> It's meant to be about the life I've created for it, which would be between 25 and maybe 30 or 1,000 words, which still makes it, I think, the longest novella I've ever written, Isle of Gold being 19,000. Oh, is that all? Okay. So that's what I've been doing, and next month I'm hoping to, when the Bughead's done, to start sending off some proposals for various books I finished. So. All right. When I have a chance, which I don't know when that'll be, might be after the semester... I have I do have a Leo video that I need to finally edit. One that I filmed over the summer actually, but never actually had a chance to to finish. At some point, it needs to actually get finished because half the reason I made it is when I had long hair, <laughs> and even now, already looking back on it, it's like I cannot believe it was that long. <laughs> it's just it's hilarious. So I'm definitely gonna have to finish it, and hopefully, I mean, it'll probably be during Christmas break when I actually do it. But it needs it needs to be seen. I'll be. I'll look forward to it. Yep. So I guess next we have another new section. Uh, we introduced uh, several new sections last episode, and we have a new one this time. We call it Cinema Selections with Brian Churchill. So Cinema Selections with Brian Churchill is when I interview my friend Brian Churchill, who has watched many, many classic movies. He's been working his way through various uh, film lists, like the top 250, AFI's, top 100, other, uh, the National Film Registry, a variety of lists of what you need to see. And he's seen more than those as well. But we decided occasionally we'll talk to him and just get his input on interesting movie that he thinks other people should watch. This section is largely for uh, if you've been interested in classic movies but don't know where to start. Um, hopefully some of these will pique your interest. And I think we should throw in a little bit of why we're bringing people in like Brian to talk about stuff. We we like the idea of the real trains of thought being very community of storytellers and creative type people focused. It harkens back to when Derailed Trains of Thought was a writing group of writers encouraging each other with their craft. So we like bringing in other people besides ourselves who are at 
who are expert in one area or another. And we have plans to bring in several others over the next couple months, hopefully. Yeah. And although I'm technically the film student, Brian is much harder core film historian, film buff than I am. I think it's safe to say I've probably seen more classics than you, Nick. Yes, almost certainly. But Brian has seen way more. So So with no further ado, uh, this was taped previously, but here's uh, Brian Churchill. Brian's been great at introducing me to a variety of movies that I have always meant to watch, but haven't. And that's kind of the the main focus of this section here, is to introduce you to movies that you might have heard about, and hopefully whet your appetite to uh, go and watch them yourself. Uh, today we decided to talk about The Best Years of Our Lives, which was released in 1946. Brian, give us a, a rundown on The Best Years of Our Lives. Okay, Best Years of Our Lives is... Uh... A real milestone in American movie history. For one, it sort of began what most refer to as the post-war film era, which began in 1946 after the war and ended generally the consensus in 1962. Sometimes it's up to 1964 or later, but generally around there. And this was a this is a fantastic inaugural to the uh, post-war film era. First of all, it, the topic is of the best years of our lives. It's about three servicemen. Uh, who return from World War II, and each of them from a different section of society. And then they have to go about picking up where they left off, with their jobs, their relationships, and life in general. They are returning to a uh, fictional town, but the model or the town is modeled after uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. And so this was a big, big film, uh, especially for you know, returning veterans and for just everybody you know, in America after the war was over. So a big, big milestone there. It was one of the first films to be put on the National Film Registry when it was created in 1989. It was produced by Samuel Goldwyn, uh, directed by William Wyler, a fantastic director. Um, it won seven Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, and many others. Um, Best Music, many others. The cast, a uh, very big list of stars, uh, including Myrna Loy, Frederick March, Dana Andrews, Teresa Wright, Virginia Mayo, Harold Russell, and Kathy O'Donnell and entertainer Hoagie Carmichael. The music is by Hugo Friedhofer. This film is about 172 minutes, almost three hours long, but it feels more like two. It's a very well-crafted story. Um, Weiler is, is known for, for doing you know, very, very perfectionist work, and, and this is possibly his, his, the best example of it. But that's the, uh, that's the basic rundown of it. It's a drama, but it's not a... Uh, it's nothing nothing that weighs you down i mean it it has a it has a great ending has a has a great you know feel throughout and just getting the the feeling of, of post war america it's this movie is like pretty much it i mean it's this is one of the best examples of of post war filmmaking so it's a good window into the time period um and culture as well as being a good movie oh absolutely yes i recently saw this film with my grandmother who's now uh, she's going to be 89 and the the memories just flowed back into her head and and you know from from the time that she lived through it and uh it was really amazing to watch i mean she recognized the songs she recognized the the looks of of you know what the 40s look like um it's it's a fantastic window into the into the second half of the 40s that sounds very good i'll have to pick that one up soon you said there were three Main characters, correct? Mm-hmm. Are their lives intertwined, or are they kind of parallel? We watch parallel lives unfolding. Oh, good question. It's actually both. They're they're paralleled and they uh, they intersect each other in in big ways throughout the movie. And the, because uh, the way that it works is the three servicemen are returning from the war at the very beginning of the movie, and they meet each other and are acquainted, and they realize they're from the same town. And so that there's the first meeting, and then the rest of the the rest of the movie, there's the the kind of intersection and the uh, collision sometimes of the uh, of the characters. And it's the one of the big things with best years of our lives is an actor. Well, he's not really an actor. He definitely appeared in it. He's just not a professionally trained actor. His name's Harold Russell. He holds the distinction of being the only person to ever receive two Academy Awards for the same role. He was a real-life war veteran. He lost his arms in, most of his arms, in uh, World War II in real life. And he was added to the cast as a just a the the most direct way, you know, to to see a post-war veteran. And so... 
he, he was put in there and, and he did extremely well. He won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor and he also uh, received an honorary award for, quote, bringing hope and courage to his fellow veterans through his appearance in the best years of our lives. And so that was his second Oscar. It was an honorary Oscar. Wow, that's a really unique story to go with it. Yes, and, and he is fantastic in the movie. He received a minimal amount of actor's training in order to do the movie, so he comes off in a very realistic, very realistic and touching way, and, and he's so natural uh, as well. He, he just has a very natural way to him and just a very appealing personality that puts so much extra feeling into the movie to actually have you know, a post-war veteran. And I guess, not to give him too much away, but on the ends of his prosthetic arms, he has a hook on each end and behind the scenes when he would meet somebody and they would go to shake hands well he would just hold out the hook and he'd say it's okay just grab a hold of it and shake it it's all right and so everybody at the uh, at the studio was able to to get used to it very quickly of course and that's what a lot of the film is about too it's it's you know obviously these guys have been gone for years and they've been you know they've seen all these things had been through combat and so many other things that, you know, is, was the life of the war. And so you were able to also look into, you know, this movie's a very good way to look into uh, what, you know, the veterans had to go through and, and, and just everything that they encountered was trying to readjust to, to post-war American life and the economic boom that occurred shortly afterwards. Although they, at the time in 1946, they had probably a, only a little bit of an idea how much the post-war boom would actually do to our, our economy, which was, of course, huge. So say someone watches this movie and they're like, okay, this is really good. Well, I would like more movies that kind of give, give me an insight into war, readjustment after war. Any just quick list of other movies you might be able to recommend? Movies that occurred during a war, I would, uh, one that's also on, that we'll eventually get to, is Bridge on the River Kwai, which is kind of an anti-war film, but at the same time a war film in and of itself. And it's about men who are forced to work in a, a Japanese labor camp to build a bridge. Another one that I would suggest would be another movie called uh, Stalag 17, which is about a German POW camp that has Americans and various other uh, uh, nationals, but mostly Americans in it. Another example would be The Great Escape from 1963, which involves the escape of uh, POWs from a uh, German war camp. And so that's also a very big one. And another example would be Letters from Iwo Jima. Oh, I have not seen that. Yes, it's uh, directed by Clint Eastwood, and it's the story of... It's told from the Iwo Jima, uh, you know, the Japanese side of the Battle of Iwo Jima. And so it shows, you know, it's, it's all, I mean, almost literally all uh, Japanese uh, spoken with uh, English subtitles. And uh, it involves just all of the things that they had to go through with, obviously, the, the Japanese war machine... <laughs> Uh, on you know, literally on top of them, telling them to do all these, what end up being really amazing feats that they really should not have been put through. And it's, but that's a really good follow up as to, man, but and that's a genuine war film. I mean, there's yeah, yeah, the the whole battle is just taking place, and it's a very, uh, very fantastic battle sequence. Yeah, it doesn't seem like there's, from my knowledge of movies, which is not as great as yours, that many movies that are show the readjustment afterwards. Right, and that's what makes this movie a little bit different. I mean, we've had uh, we've had a few movies coming out recently about about the gear down of, the, of Iraq and various conflicts, and I and I haven't really seen all that many of those because so often I'm just pouring through classic films that go all the way back to you know the early early twenties. But there have been quite a few, and I don't know if they really address that. I maybe maybe that the best years of our lives could end up being the ultimate you know post war kind of film, as far as just showing how to readjust from living a war for years on end and not seeing your family and then just coming back and, and having to, to start back over again. Betty Davis said that the best years of our lives was the greatest film ever produced by Hollywood. And that's quite a claim to make. And I think she may very well have been right. And we're back, and that 
his talking about the best years of our lives makes me want to go rent that movie. Yeah, same here. I was happy that I have seen a couple of the World War II era films that he also recommended. Bridge on the River Kwai is just a classic. If you haven't seen much of Alec Guinness aside from his classic role as Obi-Wan Kenobi, that's also him in a very different kind of role, but very good stuff. And The Great Escape, which is also an excellent movie and is alluded to a lot of times in Chicken Run. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> We'll finally move on to one of our last sections, which is Crackpot's Corner. Tim, what do you like to start this time? Sure. Here's an old idea that I had, and this is one that, that came to me back when reality TV was somewhat new, the Survivor kind of stuff. To be honest, I'm not a fan of most reality television, mainly because... Well, put it this way. I like game shows. I think game shows are interesting. But I don't like the creation of drama in a sense that's like high school drama. The bad kind of drama (laughs) where you're basically just gossiping and picking apart other people. That's why I've never been that interested in Survivor or Big Brother or shows like that. Although The Amazing Race can be interesting occasionally because that's more like an actual race to go to one place or another, how fast you can get there. It's more game show oriented. But if I was to produce my own reality show, what I think would be interesting would be to simulate an actual action adventure of sorts where I'm not sure exactly what kind of form it would take, but your contestants would be put in this situation where it was simulating some sort of like a plot line that you would see in an action movie, like a kidnapping or a bank robbery or something. And your contestant would be put in this situation when, and they wouldn't really know what was going on. I mean, they would know it was all a simulation, so they wouldn't, you know, try to actually use lethal force or something, <laughs> <laughs> kill the extras, the actors, but it would, would kind of simulate that you have to go on the quest and act rather than just being you know a race where you have to get through check marks you actually would have to spy on actors who are acting like as mobsters or criminal overlords or you know something like that so like a a very involved dinner murder mystery exactly something like that and the trick would be to make it seem you know semi-realistic without actually putting anyone in danger Part of the conceit of reality TV is that it's not quite as, you know, it's not nearly as dangerous as they make it look. These people are being followed around by camera people. They got crew all around them. But <laughs> but they want you to think that, you know, they're putting their life on the line for this thing when they're not. So that would be one way to make sure that someone who had no idea what was actually going on, you know, didn't mistakenly get involved. But I think it would be just a very interesting take on it. You know, how would your average Joe Schmo adopted these situations on the fly. Could you get an actual action hero that isn't scripted through cool lines and quick thinking and stuff like that? I think it would be a fun experiment. I, I think that'd be great. You would have episodes like uh, there's a bomb in the building three eight blocks down is going off in a half an hour sort of thing. Sure, that could be one. <laughs> it could be a case of... Well, maybe you could do like a treasure, you know, national treasure sort of thing. Where oh, that'd have, be cool. Yeah, you have to track down an ancient thing. And maybe it's even a case where it's a couple contestants. Maybe it's a couple even. And the guy's girlfriend gets kidnapped at some point, And she can have her own side adventure where she's trying to escape. Because, you know, that's always a fun kind of the smart hostage that can get out of the situation by themselves. MacGyver sort of thing. And then the, the boyfriend's trying to get his girl back. But, you know, it's pretend. So That would be very cool. And then if you, perhaps, you could have a, a scripted uh, boss or, a, you know, someone who give them hints now and then if things got too slow, I suppose. Yeah, v- very possibly. It'd be, it'd be very tricky to design. I mean, I guess in a sense it would almost be like designing a video game. Because they have planned, you know, encounters and situations and stuff like that. A very detailed LARP. Yeah, <laughs> essentially live action role playing. Yeah, very detailed kind of form of that. But it, I think it would be an interesting television show. I'm actually surprised they haven't tried something like that. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know if they just haven't found a good way if it would be too complicated, you know, with actors and trying to get stunt people. I mean, I mean, how do you train you don't know what kind of stunts the person is liable to pull? Maybe there's just too much legal liability there. I have no idea. No, that could be. 
you'd have to find ways to uh, narrow the range of options for the character. Otherwise, you can't plan for 10,000 contingencies. Yeah, that's true. And I guess that'd be the real trick. But, you know, maybe some sort of escape from, you know, escape from prison or something like that. That's true. From the evil bad guy's lair. You know, there's certain setups you could make that would work, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. Remember Legends of the Hidden Temple on Nickelodeon? Yes, I was just thinking that. It's similar to that, because that was always the coolest part, going through the temple and trying to escape the guards and stuff like that. And so something like that on like a wide scale basis for adults, I think would just be a blast. You know what you need? You need to get one of those uh, planned cities. You know, like the sort of things they use for the Truman Show? Oh, yeah. There you go. That'd be really expensive, though. <laughs> well, if you did it on, like, you know, a Hollywood set is... That's true. Sort of like that to a degree. I mean, if you've ever taken tours... Well, I don't know if you've ever taken tours at, like, Warner Brothers or Universal Studios, but that's kind of what they have. Miniature towns or cities. See, that'd be that would be cool. Yeah. So get on that, you TV mongols out there who are definitely listening to our podcast. Come on, Mark Burnett. It's the next big thing. Jerry Bruckheimer. Can you imagine a Jerry Bruckheimer yeah, there we go. reality show? Totally. Yeah, Nicolas Cage can host it. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> I really want to I really want to see it happen now. So my idea was kind of on the completely different end. <laughs> I I had this idea, and I don't know if I've mentioned it to you before, Tim, but doing Really short, like, one-minute videos of just a collection that would kind of highlight a person's life. Not his life, his day. And the point of these movies would be to kind of accentuate all those little mundane things that happen that are kind of cool. Here, here's the, the one that I had started out with. Mm-hmm. Is that it would start out with, like, this scene of a guy, he's, like, sleeping. And then it would cut to him sitting on this bridge over this creek. Real soap opera vision sort of lens. And then kind of go back and forth. He'd kind of roll around bed and then it'd be closer in on him, just all enjoying himself by the creek. And then intersperse him back and forth. And then go back to the bedroom finally. He'd get up and he'd walk out of the room. And then you'd hear the toilet flush. <laughs> and the idea would be, you know, the dream, he was dreaming of this creek. And, it's, and you get more and more, as you get close to his dream version, it'd be more and more of the sound of the water and the water and everything. I just thought it'd be a really clever way to... You know, just that experience that everyone's had of, okay, I got to get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. Uh-huh. But I thought it'd be cool to pick a number of times during the day where you could do this little one-minute humorous version of something that's happened to everyone. I like that. So it kind of brings up or makes a small moment seem more epic. Exactly. And which is, I guess, something that's run through writing cobblestones, which I don't know if we've mentioned on the podcast before. Like cobblestones that. was this idea I had of writing stories of different people in this small town, and we had various authors, they would go from person to person. But I always like cobblestones because you could take normal people and make their lives interesting. And this is kind of that done to a, on a micro scale. You take just one guy's life, or his day, and just, you know, make epic moments out of things that happen to everyone. I like that. Shine light on those things that we take for granted. I'd be interested to see how many episodes you can milk out of that. I think it'd be really cool. I think make a great little web series. I just don't have the resources or time to put that together. And it seems like it would be very doable, actually. Unlike my, like, major budgeted, you know, million-dollar kind of reality <laughs> show. That that seems like something that uh, could be done if you have the right ideas and the, the people and resources to do it. It yeah. sounds very affordable. Yeah, if you, had, if you had a group of people in, you know, a couple months, you could put together a number of them, I think. You'd have the same limited number of actors. You'd be a limited number of sets. Mm-hmm. You'd have to decide straight up, you know, if the guy live alone, is he a bachelor, does he have a family? You know, be those change what sort of moments you use. But Right, right. But I think everyone would just be called, you know, the title would just be the time of day, like 3.02 a.m. And that'd be that one. And then it'd be like 7 a.m. It'd just be something with an alarm clock, maybe. I don't know. It'd be interesting to actually vary it. I mean, it's nice to have one guy going through all the things in his day, but it could be interesting to do, maybe the second season would be, if you do call it seasons <laughs> or groups or series or something, would be about a completely different person. So then you'd That's have true. different sort of situations. I like that. I could see a parent having some very some very turmoil-filled days dealing with a bunch of kids or something like that. That's true. Or you could, if you got clever, you could intertwine them. Ooh. Which is probably what I would try because I like that sort of thing. But <laughs> it might not be the best. But I could see if you had the right group of people, that would be a fun, like, 
year-long project to put yeah. together a number of these and then release them like weekly and build a whole buzz around them and nice or maybe more than weekly if they're only minute but yeah so that's my that's my idea we'll have to tuck that idea away somewhere and uh keep it in mind that sounds very doable actually yeah so you know someday when you're trying to hit it big you can start with that yeah make it go <laughs> make it go viral all right i'll do that all right i guess well that's our crackpot's corner okay contact info tim all right. As always, you can email us at derailtrains at gmail.com or leave us a comment at our website, derailtrainsofthought.blogspot.com. As we mentioned earlier, our next podcast will come out not in two weeks, but on probably December 23rd. Yeah, a little... To adjust for Tim's semester ending and things going on here. Holidays is always a busy time in general, so... And we'll probably be filming in the same location. Yes, we're not filming, but recording. <laughs> filming, yeah, that's true. It's a video podcast! <laughs> Don't say that. No, it's not going to be a video podcast. <laughs> but yeah, it should be should be for an exciting one. We'll be recording in the same place, and it'll be something a little different. But with that said, uh, let me talk real quick about my soundtrack choice. This is one is from the game Diablo, a very popular PC game that I never played. This is called Wet Grass Inspired, and it's by a remixer called Am I Evil. He's done a lot of good stuff. I was very tempted to use another one of his remixes called Death on the Snowfield, which is also very uh, atmospheric, weather-oriented like our last one. And it's got one of my favorite game songs of all time, Terra, from Final Fantasy VI. But it's also a very depressing song. <laughs> well, not depressing, but it's very sad, hence the name Death on the Snowfield. So I decided to go with something that was a little mellower to kind of go out with. And again, this is called Wet Grass Inspired. You hear the sound kind of like rainfall. We talked about rain earlier in the episode. Which doesn't go through the whole song, but it, it sets the mood really well. The, the very mellow song kind of continues through. And it's a very old one, so some audio, hardcore audio remixer people might notice its age. But it's still very, very good, I think. All right, sounds good. So with that, I guess we say goodbye. This is Nick. This is Tim. Adios. See you next time.
next time on the Rail Trains of Thought. Well, Sonny, if you had been around as long as I have, you would have known that writing is not as easy as you think it is. Oh, I, I hear you there, man. I'm telling you, I wrote some things back then they were just awful. Uh, there's a few good things, but most of it's just wretched. You young whippersnappers need to learn that you always got to improve and don't be, uh, don't be, uh, too proud of what you got done because someday you'll look back on it and you'll be like, oh, that's awful! Next time on the real train of thought.